So I'm curious what you noticed in your meditation, if you noticed anything, in terms of the experience of change and transience. What did you notice? Yeah? Avoidance. Avoidance. You notice avoidance of change? Uh Uh-huh. Not wanting to... Yeah. Okay, that's... Yeah. That's what we do. Yeah. What else? Yeah? Right. So sometimes knowing things will change is a blessing, because especially in the midst of difficulty and challenge, the the knowing, the trusting that they will shift, is what makes it easier. Yeah, the back. Oh yes, yes. Things change like memory, and mine is <laughs> fading by the minute. And there is somebody with a green Volkswagen Cabriolet who has the cab lights on. So, is that you? No. Okay, license plate, 3LTC748, green Volkswagen. Huh? Are we good? Bingo. This is from, we should have done a bingo sometime. Could all watch your grasping minds and see whether you have mudita, appreciative joy, or envy, or hatred, or for the winner. Uh, what else do you notice? Paying attention to change, transience in the meditation. Anything? Nope, not a thing. <laughs> All right. Good. <laughs> mm-hmm. You fell asleep. Was that exciting? The change. <laughs> Sleep happens when we sleep. So, yes. Um, I have a, a sort of conflict with the with the change because mm. I, when I get into meditation, I notice a, a permanence, like a quietness, mm. and then it does not change that much. Mm-hmm. And I some queries about about if there is this back and forth between change and permanence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the she, the comments noticing that when she meditates, that there's a sense often of this sense of unchanging quality. Yeah, so that can happen. And uh, it's one of the mysteries of uh, human experience, is we can be both aware of change and also uh, be hmm, cognizant, perhaps, of that which doesn't change or that which is knowing change isn't necessarily changing. I'll I'll say more about that later. So what I'm interested in is, um, as I said earlier, our relationship to this teaching, because change happens. We all see ourselves getting older. I used to think getting older happened to older people. And I realize it happens to everybody. And sometimes it surprises you when you look in the mirror. 
So it's a very obvious fact of our experience. So the, I, partly I should give a background to why I'm giving this teaching. So um, I'm teaching the next three evenings, and so when I have a series, when I have a, some evenings together, I like to give a, um, uh, um, a teaching that I need, I need several nights to teach over. So the, the Buddha, in one of his uh, key teachings, is what's called the characteristics of existence, the characteristics that characterize each and every experience. And so the first of those characteristics is the quality of impermanence, that everything, every experience, every person, every living, breathing thing in the universe is subject to this law. The Dharma means law, and one of the laws is transience, change. And how we relate to this law, this reality, determines whether we feel peaceful or at ease or distress and anxiety and frustration and victimized and miserable. So we all have to deal with this reality every single day, every moment of our lives, some small, some big changes. And it always confronts us with our relationship to it. Nobody gets away with it. Whether it's a change in health or in aging or in loss of things we love, people, situations, experiences, uh, even beautiful states, meditation states, we are always confronted with this, with this truth. Um, and so that, that chant that I chanted, and the last line of it, which says, to be in harmony with this truth brings great happiness, is to our normal everyday mind somewhat paradoxical. How could we be happy knowing, living with the reality of this, tr- this, this truth? So for the Buddha, and I want to speak a little uh, about the background of of his life and where this teaching, I think, is so central. So the Buddha came into this life, and his mother died at birth. And who knows? There's there's no no account of what he experienced or felt about that. But, you know, when we lose our mother at birth, it's a significant loss. And I can't help thinking that this was uh, a key conditioning factor in his perception of the world and reality. And um, prior to him sort of embarking on the spiritual path, uh, he had what's called, the f- um, uh, he had um, four insights, you could say, into the what's called the heavenly messengers, um, where he was struck um, by the reality of uh, aging, uh, sickness, death, and th- these, uh, these happened in four sites, and many of you know the stories. He saw an old person, he'd been very secluded, and he saw an old person, and he was befuddled by what that was. He was protected from illness and sickness, and then he was confronted with sickness, and then confronted with death. And all these things, as they do to all of us, can be very shattering, especially when it comes close to us, when we're the ones who are sick or getting older or uh, uh, at risk of dying, or we lose uh, people close to us. And so this, pers- this sort of prompted him to have this, this, this re- um, recollection, which was really, I think, the fuel for his uh, practice to understand, well, what brings relief, what brings freedom from this, l- this lot, if this is uh, the human experience? And he said, why should I, who am subject to old age, sickness, and death, seek that which is also subject to old age, sickness, and death? What if I seek... Uh, nibbana, which is not subject to these changes. What, do I see? what, do I, what if I seek a peace that is beyond 
the pain of change. So that's what fueled him on his path. And I, had, I was with a student today. We were having a conversation. She's been meditating for a long time. And she came in and said, oh, I've just been spending a lot of time in the hospital getting uh, first a mammogram and then a sonogram and then biopsies. And um, they're not, it's not clear whether she may have breast cancer. Um, so we were talking about the reality of death and, and, and loss and uh, these things. And, and she said, um, so this beautiful thing, she said, um, what, what matters most to me doesn't change. What matters most doesn't change. So, and this she's, what she's pointing to is what the Buddha's pointing to. What if I seek that which is not subject to the law of old age, old age, sickness, and death? What is beyond that in this transient life? And so speech, spiritual teachings point to something which is beyond transience, that's beyond the grasp of the rational mind, that's a certain peacefulness that is present in the awareness that knows change. So later, as after the Buddha's awakening, he was talking to his monks, and he said, Oh, monks and nuns, maybe you can possess that possession, the possession that is permanent, stable, eternal, not of the nature to become other than it is, that would stay just like it is for an eternity. Can you see such a thing? Can you, see, can you have such a thing? And the, and, the, and the monk said, Of course not. There's nothing like that. And he said, You're right. You're right. So why do we keep seeking for it? Why do we keep seeking for that which we think is going to last? Anybody here not spend a lot of time seeking after, saving money for, or whatever, to get something that doesn't change? Whether it's a relationship, or financial security, or a state of health, fitness, or some great whatever it is that you're into, Golf club, sports car, I don't know what, you know, whatever floats your boat. Um, how many of us get lost time and again, even though we know no matter how much we put into that pursuit, it doesn't last? We do the same in meditation. How much time do you spend seeking after that great experience? I hear this again and again and again. Sometimes people spend years. Joseph Goldstein, one of the founders of this tradition, um, spent two years. He had a great experience in Bodhgaya, um, where the Buddha got enlightened, and then had to come back home to a state to attend to some family business. Went back and spent two years trying to get back to that state. <laughs> Guess what happened? Was he successful? No, he just spent two years grasping, <laughs> which is what we do. Or we spend, two, we spend years waiting for an experience, for it to come back. And what, what are we cultivating? We're cultivating waiting mind, or grasping mind. And of course, these, st- these things, especially in, in, in the meditation realm, in the inner realm, they don't arise when we're grasping. They arise out of letting go. They arise out of, non, of, of, of not holding on. They arise out of peace. They arise out of curiosity. So what happens when we, when we start to turn our attention to 
this reality. Normally, as, as, as some people alluded to, we don't want to look at this. We don't want to see that we're getting older. You know, it's interesting. We start when we're young, all we want to be is older. You know, we want to get to high school, and then we want to be able to drive, and then we want to be old enough to drink, we want to be old enough to vote, and then old enough to go to college, and old enough to get married, and then, oh, I don't want to be so old. Oh, I want to actually, yeah, it doesn't look so good up there. And, and then we start getting older, and oh, it's, time's going really fast. And, and at some point it's like, oh, it's a downhill stretch from here on out. <laughs> it's a one-way street. Leading cause of, cause of death is birth. And we realize we all have terminal illness. Just a question of how quickly or how slowly we get there. And we live in this odd culture where there's a certain, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's an intense denial of it. In the media and whatnot. So this is a poem from one of my favorite poets, Ellen Bass, local lass from Santa Cruz. What if you knew you'd be the last to touch somebody? If you were taking tickets, for example, at the theater, tearing them, giving them back the ragged stubs, you might take care to touch that palm or press your fingertips into the crease of a lifeline. When a man pulls his wheeled suitcase too slowly through the airport or when the car in front of me doesn't signal, or when the clerk at the pharmacy won't say thank you, I don't remember they're going to die. A friend told me she'd been with her aunt. They had just had lunch, and the waiter, a young gay man with plum black eyes, joked as he served the coffee, kissed her aunt's powdered cheek, and when they left. Then they walked down half a block down the street, and her aunt dropped dead on the sidewalk. How close does the dragon's spume have to come? How wide does the crack in heaven have to split? What would people look like if we could see them as they are, soaked in honey, stung and swollen, reckless and pinned against time? What if we, what if we could look at people and see them as they are, pinned against time? We're all pinned against time. I love that expression. So, there are many different responses to this truth, this teaching. One of the things it can do, you know, we can see the, the folly of chasing certain transient experiences, but it's not to say we can't enjoy what's here. It's just a question of how we relate and how much we demand or control or tighten or grasp or hold on to things that are ine- inevitably going to change. And of course, the, the mind pictures change as negative. And we don't see the potential and possibility that comes from change. And I'll talk more about that later. Mary Oliver, the poet, puts it in a poem. And I think of the, the poetic sensibility as a sensibility that's aware of the preciousness and the fragility and the, the poignancy of any moment. And that's what brings that kind of clarity of seeing for a poet. She writes at at a poem called When Death Comes, which is a beautiful poem. Let's see if I can remember more of it than I've just written here. She says, When death comes like a hungry bear in autumn, when death comes like a sharp pain between the shoulder blades, um, I want to step uh, into that cottage of darkness. I'm completely ruining this poem, oh dear. Uh, I want to step through the door full of curiosity, wondering 
what is it going to be like? And therefore I look upon everything as a brotherhood as an, and a sisterhood. And I think of time as no more than an idea and imagine eternity as another possibility. I look upon each body as a line of courage and each name a comfortable music to the mouth. When it's all over, I want to say, I don't want to say. When it's all over, I want to say, all my life I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. When it's all over, I don't want to find myself being frightened and sighing, and I don't want to think that I've just simply visited this world. So this line about being a bride married to amazement, sorry Mary Oliver for not reciting that perfectly, but um, I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. There's a sense of being alive to the moment, appreciating the spring, the cold air today, the moon as it's waning, um, the call of the birds returning from spring. So we can, we can react with fear, with disdain, with dread, or we can feel the preciousness, the aliveness of this, this moment. She puts it in, an, in, another, in a way, she puts it in another way in another poem. She writes, um, to live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it, and when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. <coughs> we usually forget the last line. <laughs> to love what is mortal, yes, we love what is, we love what is here. We appreciate what is here. To hold it against your bone, appreciate it. The, the and then when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. That's the piece we forget. We hold on. We don't want the pleasure, the warmth, the connection to lose, to wane. To, of course we don't. It's natural human nature. But when we don't, we crumple the rose that we're holding on to, whatever that is for us. So at the end of his life, the Buddha spoke these words. He said, um, all conditioned things are impermanent. Everything in this life changes. With mindfulness, work out your liberation. Understand the truth. So, and all through his teaching, it's, it, was, it was central to his understanding that um, because of change, there's causality. Because of causality, we can shift from our current state to one that's more uh, easeful, peaceful, and free. If that wasn't possible, we wouldn't be able to transform ourselves. That's the good news. Transience makes it possible for us to grow, makes it possible to see, to, to choose different realities, different choices than we've chosen in the past that may not have led to great things. So the, the teaching on causality, everything arises upon conditions. Or as the great Tibetan teacher Padmasambhava once said, to understand the past, look to your present conditions. To, and to know your future, look to the present conditions. Look to your present actions, sorry. To understand the past, look at how the present is because what, the, what we are now is a result of the past. To understand the future, look to your present actions because those actions will determine 
your reality in the future, whether they come from wisdom, kindness, or whether they come from greed and delusion. So I remember a, a student coming to the essential Dharma class that I was mentioning earlier, um, who, uh, whose life was going through a difficult spell, and she was about to get fired in her job. She was, uh, uh, she was a, a nurse who worked with a homeless unit in the East Bay. And she uh, came as a last resort to meditation, thinking that might help and help turn things around at work. And uh, so she took the first 10 weeks of the course. Um, and at the end of the 10 weeks, um, people uh, at work were saying, you know, what, what's happening to you? you you're, you're really different. Like, what's going on? Are you faking it or something? Are you trying to be nice? Or and then she ended up doing the whole uh, three semesters, which is a year long. And um, at the end of the year, she got a glowing report. And she transformed her relationship to herself and her relationships at work. And um, it was astounding transformation. Just simply by becoming more mindful, becoming more aware, becoming more cognizant of her choices and her actions, and making wiser choices, being less reactive, as the practice can do. <coughs> so... Uh, so we can, we can relate to this ch- teaching in different ways and we can use it in a way that, that's, that we, we, can s- we can look at it as a, as a blessing rather than as a curse. We can see that transformation is possible, choice is possible in any moment. This is from the Buddha. He said, mind is the forerunner of all things. With our thoughts we make the world. If one speaks or acts with an impure mind, suffering follows like the wheel that follows the cart. Mind is the forerunner of all things. With our thoughts, we make the world. If we speak or act with a pure mind, a wholesome mind, happiness follows us like a shadow or a friend. So again, he's pointing to, it's very simple. His teaching is very simple. We're shifting from the unwholesome to wholesome, to skillful, unskillful to skillful. And so in each moment, we have this choice point to shift our perspective, to shift our reality. So I want to read another poem by uh, another local teacher, Jennifer Warwood, called Darkini Speaks. My friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here, or if we truly haven't noticed. Let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully like ripe human beings. But please, let's not be so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us, and she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child, she seems cruel, but she is only wild, and a compassion exquisitely precise, brilliantly penetrating, luminous with this truth. She strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. Let's stop making safe deals. Let's stop making deals for a safe passage. There isn't one anyway, and the cost is too high. We are not children anymore. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. Let dance the wild hope. Let dance the wild dance of no hope. Let's grow up. What would be to grow up? 
that we're not so shocked by change and loss. Of course, we, we're going to be shocked by change and loss, but sometimes we personalize it as we're doing something wrong, as we're the only ones. You know, it reminds me of the story that I'm sure many of you know of Kisa Gautami, who lost her uh, firstborn in India at the time of the Buddha, and was naturally incredibly distraught and distressed, and came to the Buddha and said, please help me, what can I do? And he says, I'll help you, um, but first you have to go find a seed of mustard from a household that hasn't had any loss. And so she goes round to the village uh, in great excitement or hope that she can find this mustard seed, and she asks, can I have a mustard seed at the first house? And they said, of course, and then and she says, but it, but it has to come from a house where there's been no loss. And they say, what do you mean? We've had many losses, children, our grandparents. And so she goes to the next house, and she goes all the way around the village, and of course there's not one single house that doesn't have a uh, great loss in the household. And she finally gets it, and she buries her son and comes back to the Buddha and says, I, I now see what you're pointing to. And she ends up joining the, the monastic order and uh, excelling in the practice. So in the Mahabharata, the uh, great uh, Hindu text, there's a line uh, goes like this. What is the most wondrous thing in the world? People seeing others get old and sick and die and thinking it won't happen to them. <laughs> so, isn't that amazing? We all do that. <laughs> and we forget that that's also us. This is from uh, from the texts. This is... Uh, Buddha's cousin talking to the Buddha, who was his attendant for many years. It is wonderful, Lord. It is marvelous. Now all the color of the Blessed One, that's the Buddha, the Blessed One's skin is no more clear and bright. All his limbs are flaccid and wrinkled. His body is bent forward, and there seems a change in the sense faculties. So it is that these sense beings delight in the understanding of impermanence. So here's Ananda thinking it's great joy and wonder that the Buddha's getting old and wrinkled and flaccid. <laughs> It's a very different take on impermanence. It's, it's an embracing of it with, oh yeah, this is how it is. And it's not such a, it's not suffering if there's not resistance to it. But it is if we resist it, if we fight it. Which of course we do because we're human and we forget. And we get afraid of the unknown. The ego likes least uncertainty. And uncertainty is the only certainty there is in this life. <laughs> so, as always with these teachings, it requires a certain compassion, a certain kind-heartedness to meet that. You know, it's hard to get old. It's hard to be sick. It's hard to not know the future. It's hard to know to not know any certainty, because none of us really have certainty. Even though it seems like we might have, we might have a 401k and a house and a relationship and all of that, and it can all fall apart, as you and I have seen it many times, both economically, but also personally. I've seen, I've had many, many students come and say, you know, I, I moved to the Bay Area, and then my parents were getting older, so they came, and then my father got cancer and he slipped and fell and broke his hip and my mother got Alzheimer's and couldn't look after him and just this catalog of loss and change and um, tragic and it's 
universal. So, from the perspective of the Dharma practice, um, the, the, one of the points of turning towards this teaching is to wake us up, to wake us up from our sleep, to bring some sense of urgency to our practice. So we look at the truth of life rather than be hit and blindsided by it. So we practice. That's why we practice in meditation with uncertainty, with, with change, with actually trying to feel viscerally what it's like. So when, we, when we're in our lives, we're not so shocked. This is from great Zen master Kukai, who was founder of a uh, Zen tradition. Beautiful poem. You asked me why I entered the mountain deep and cold, awesome, surrounded by steep peaks and grotesque rocks, a place that is painful to climb and difficult to ascend, wherein reside the gods of the mountain and the spirits of the trees. Have you not seen, oh, have you not seen the peach and the plum blossoms in the royal garden? They must be in full bloom, pink and fragrant, now opening in April showers, now falling in spring gales, flying high and low all over the garden the petals scatter. Have you not seen, oh, have you not seen the water gushing up in the divine spring of the garden? No sooner does it arise than it flows away forever. Thousands of shining lines flow as they come forth, flowing and flowing into an unfathomable abyss. Turning and whirling again, they flow on forever, and no one knows where they will stop. Have you not seen, oh, have you not seen the billions who lived in China or Japan? None have been immortal from time immemorial, ancient sage kings or tyrants, good subjects or bad, fair ladies or homely, who could enjoy eternal youth? Noble men and lowly alike, without exception, die away. They have all died, reduced to dust and ashes. The singing halls and dancing stages have become the abode of foxes, transient as dreams, as bubbles, lightning, all are perpetual travelers. Have you not seen, oh, have you not seen, this has been man's fate? How can you alone live forever? Thinking of this, my heart always feels torn. You too are like the sun going down in the western mountains, or like a living corpse whose span of life is nearly over. Futile would be my stay in the capital. Away, away, I must go, I must not stay there. Release me, for I shall be master of the great void. I have never tired of watching the pine trees and rocks at Mount Koya. The limpid stream of the mountain is the source of my inexhaustible joy. Discard pride in earthly games. Discipline in meditation alone lets us soon enter the eternal realm. So that's a pretty common response in the tradition to this teaching, to wake us up to that life is short, that we only have so much time to understand who we are, to be free, to wake up, whatever that means to us. And you know, we live in a culture of distraction, a culture of mind-numbing stimulation. And so we forget. It's when we come to meditation, when we come to a place like this, we, we remember, oh yeah, there's something deeper in my heart, in my soul, in my, in my, in it's yearning that wants to know something more substantive about life.
For me, I, I spend a lot of time outdoors in nature, and that's my teacher. You know, we go outside, and whether it's the dormancy of winter or the fecundity of spring, there's something about that, sh- that eternally moving, shifting landscape that reminds me, oh yeah, it's always changing. There's both hope, there's possibility, there's decay, there's times of dormancy and hibernation, and there's vibrancy, and there's abundance, and there's decay, and there's sleep, and there's rest, and then there's aliveness and rebirth, constantly moving. We have, the, we have those same cycles within us, both at times in our lives, in the greatest man, but also the times of the day, our energy and movement. So again, the, the, the reason I'm giving this teaching, not because you don't know about this, is, is, to, is to ask us to ask you to look at, at your relationship to change. So I, I once had a student in England, in Wales actually, who went to a teaching with the Dalai Lama many years ago, uh, who was giving a Kala Chakra uh, initiation, which is a big 10-day ritual, um, some of which is focused around the teachings of impermanence. And she was so moved by the ritual, she, uh, at the end, of the, the end of the ceremony, she went up to the altar and took some roses to take back for her own altar back home, which she put there for a while. And of course, as the roses got older, they decayed and you know, withered away a little. And one day she came home and she noticed that Kleena had vacuumed the roses for these dead, decaying, decaying plants, uh, uh, vacuumed them up and um, tidied the place up. And she came home and noticed that these precious mementos of this ceremony were gone and she was horrified and she called her husband and um, he came home and uh, she asked him to go through the vacuum bag to see if she could pick out the rose petals and halfway through, you know, dust everywhere and little scraps of rose, she realized, oh, wait a minute, this is a teaching on impermanence. <laughs> and I'm picking out these dead, decaying roses, like there's something wrong with this picture. So, and that's true with all of these teachings, you know, we know them intellectually and then w- the question is whether we live them. You know, do we, you know, when, when, we, when, we, when we're faced with a sudden loss, whether it's who knows what that could be, whether it's our work or or a dear friend passing or somebody moving or, um, you know, what happens? What's our response? Is there some deep knowing like, oh yeah, this is is how it is. This is how it is. You know, when the the Buddha lost his two key disciples who'd been friends of his for decades, um, someone asked how it was for him. Um, given he's teaching about impermanence the whole time, and, you know, was he bothered, you know? It's just another thing coming and going. It's all just, you know, passing stuff. And he said, it's like the sun, and it's like the light from the sun and the moon going out. Clearly, he cared deeply about everything, life, friendships, and also knew that that's the nature of how things are. And then we have these, these times where we wake up, whether it's because of a death of a close one or a loss or change in health. And we, uh, f- for a while, th- you know, often we experience a sense of aliveness. There's a sense of clarity with our closeness, with the, the, the viscerality of life. And then, of course, over time, we, we forget. We all have a, a certain amnesia around change. Just like when we're sick, we can't remember what it's like to be healthy. When we're healthy, we can't remember what it's like to be sick. 
it's the same with with this with the sense of loss. It doesn't. I think if we, I, I, I just imagine evolutionary speaking, if we kept it so much in our consciousness, it would be hard to function in a certain way. So there's a certain way it just goes background, and we we live in the illusion of this moment lasting, this relationship lasting, this sense experience lasting. You know, now we're living in a time where. We're seeing change on a, on a macro scale. The climate is changing ra- radically. The, the weather systems are changing radically. So there's the, the micro and the macro changes. And again, what's our relationship to that? Are we surprised that the, the, the climate is changing? Are we wanting it to stay the same? So how do you maintain this recollection, this awareness? How do you keep it in the forefront of your attention so it's not a surprise or a shock? What is it that's noticing change? What is it that's noticing transience? Does this quality of awareness change? Or is there something more abiding that seems to be beyond the coming and going of phenomena. What is being present to everything that's come and gone in your life? What remains stable? So questions that I have, so there's a couple more questions I have for you. One is, um, uh, where do you forget about change? Where do you go to sleep? And what helps you stay conscious of it? What helps you stay cognizant? So, questions, comments? What's your experience? This is a very, you know, a universal experience. We all had a lot of experience. Um, Often the things that have brought the most radical change have also brought the being responsible for the most growth, the most, you know, the shaking up. It often brings the most compassion, the most heartfulness, um, a reorganization of our lives. Maybe it's what brought you here, you know, with, with loss and change and things falling apart. It brings you to, well, what's, what's, what's reliable? Acceptance. Acceptance is 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 one doorway. Is one is one way to, to hold this, the profound acceptance. What else can we do? If we fight it, we suffer. But not so easy to accept it when it's when when our partner is saying, I want out of this relationship. Not so easy. Or when we see uh, we have a chronic illness that won't go away. Or we have a chronic injury that won't go away. Or we have a bad political system that we keep wanting it to change and it doesn't. (laughs) So just to to pay attention to the way the mind constructs permanence out of impermanence. And this is probably one of the biggest causes of suffering. So we, you know, we we get some flare-up in our body, some inflammation, some old injury, and it seems to stay around for a while, and then we feel 
completely depressed because you think, oh no, this is the beginning of the end. This little twinge in my knee or this backache that's been around is going to, you know, of course it could, you never know, but um, is going to, you know, be, de- be degenerative and mm, spinal fusion and, you know, all the way down. You know, of course, sometimes it does, so, you know, it's not an unreal thought. Um, but to see how we create torture out of a small experience, you know, or our partner's mad with us, and then we tr- we're then, then we're in divorce courts, you know. Um, and I, this is, has, you know, being tried, but it's, it's what the mind does. Or we have some financial wobble, we lose some money somewhere, and then there's a sense of, I'm going to be under the railway bridge. You know, it's all going to go to ruin. And it could. But the mind constructs a lot of suffering out of something that hasn't happened. It makes permanent what is impermanent. To notice where your mind, what side of the spectrum. Is change to you mean possibility and potential, or does it mean loss and uncertainty? Or does it mean both? Right? To notice where your mind goes with this, this reality. Questions? Comments? What's your experience? What, what, what keeps you awake? What, what makes you go to sleep? Yes. Maybe we can get a mic. Can we get a mic here? There's one right there. I know, thank you. I need, I need, I need a mic runner. <laughs> here he is. I'm not a mic. <laughs> You're not? <laughs> I'm a melee runner. You're a melee runner. <laughs> yeah, I, um, the other night I saw a neuroscientist on TV talking about mindfulness and the thing that struck me the most about what he said, within three weeks of mindfulness meditation, you can change your gene expression. And they, they've shown that. Mm. So three weeks isn't a long time to, in fact, restructure your genetic base to yourself. And that's pretty, that's pretty primal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there are, there are, it's good news. <laughs> Let's get busy. <laughs> change those genes. So that, that, you know, that there's good news and challenging news in this teaching. You know? We can transform. It makes things possible. You know, we can change the, the hardwiring in the brain. We can change the neural patterning. We can change a little, the, the, the thinking structures. We can change you know, a lot of things. Comments, observations. What's your relationship to change? What's, what does this bring up for you? Despair, excitement, dread, pain. Yes, this lady here in the aisle. Thank you. I'm having some difficulty with, um, like, some equanimity between when you're thinking, oh, wow, this is great, this is a great, I'm having a good time but it's not going to last. Mm-hmm. And then, then go into, well, this isn't comfortable at all. And then you go, well, that's not going to last either. I mean, where do you find some place where you're not thinking like that? Mm-hmm. Where you're not thinking like it's not going to last? Not to hang on to anything, because uh-huh. not even if it's a, ha- a good time. 
Right. Or uh, to find some way to enjoy it without thinking, well, this isn't, don't get too comfortable here because mm -hmm. this isn't going to last. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That sounds like a killjoy voice. It yeah. is. <laughs> yeah. It has some truth in it, but it's a killjoy voice. So it, it, you know, it's, yeah, the mind's a tricky thing. And, uh, you know, it's the, the way that voice to me sounds like, it sounds like the critic, what I call the critic or the judge or the, the, the killjoy. And um, it has truth in it, and um, we can still enjoy it fully. You know, as Blake said, you know, kiss, you kisses the joys, it flies, lives in the eternity, sunrise. We can kiss, we can, it's not saying pull back into some safe, reserved place. It's being fully participatory with life and knowing that however juicy and rich it is, it's going to change, you know. And we don't, it's not rocket science to know that. Um, it just requires us to hold it lightly when it starts to change, you know. So for my experience, it enriches the experience because I know, like I'm, I go back home to England and my family, and it's you know, um, it's family, it's, it's it's it is what it is. But there's the deliciousness to it, and I know it's going to be short, and I'm going to be five thousand miles away again, you know. And so it, there's a certain poignancy to it, or spring, like knowing the the blossoms are going to be here for a month and then they're gone, and so that's a great thing to practice with, you know. What's your relationship to the blossoms? Like, you know, we can't hold on to them, but we can certainly enjoy them. And then, this, this certain, this for me, there's something enjoyable about the fact that they're transient. If they were here, oh, yeah, I wouldn't even notice them. Right? Yeah, oh, there's blossoms. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Still here. Right? There's something sweet in that, unless we're attached. It's the attachment that's the, that's the suffering. Attachment to it lasting. Attachment to being a certain way. Attachment to this relationship, enduring or staying in a certain level of whatever we're liking. Yeah. So that, that is the equanimity. The equanimity comes from understanding, it comes from uh, uh, knowing the truth. Yeah. So, but to, watch, but, but to watch the voice that's making it pulling the joy away, it doesn't need to, to pull the joy away. Um, we can fully embrace it, and then, but we just have to hold it lightly. Just easier said than done. It's practice, it's all practice. But as the gentleman said earlier, it brings relief when things are difficult. You know, if we can call that to mind, you know, we're in a horrible board meeting or a difficult conversation or a long road trip or flight to the East Coast, and it's like, oh, this is horrible, horrible. Well, it's going to, you know, two days' time, it's going to be a dream. You know, think of the worst thing that ever happened to you. Right? You look back at it, it's a dream for the most part. Maybe not every single worst thing, but a lot of things that, that we, we didn't like it in the time, where are they now? Where are those peak experiences that we had? They're also, it's a dream. And it was a really useful frame of reference to look back to the past, the things that I was so passionate about or so mad about. And like, where are they now? They're just, they're just, they're barely memories. And so if we can remember that, oh, this too is going to be like that. Other comments, experiences, questions? Hi. So for me, as I get older, I'm just trying to savor the moment mm -hmm. as I go. 
because nothing is permanent and so that's that's what I'm learning mm -hmm. to get fully out of every moment mm -hmm. that I can mm -hmm. so her response is that she's savoring the moment how are you savoring the moment what does that mean um, um, I'm trying to enjoy wherever I am whatever mm -hmm. I'm doing mm -hmm. and um, and just to see clear wh mm -hmm. wherever I am Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, just to see, just to show up. Uh huh. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. <coughs> um, one thing that I'm sitting with, kind of like a, I don't know, like a koan in a way, is sometimes, sometimes I feel like I, I'm struggling right now with a situation where I, I ask myself, should I be a change maker? Should I bring about change in a really kind of possibly disruptive way or is the proper response more like acceptance and I think of you know sort of iconic figures from the past like you know Rosa Parks or Gandhi you know I mean would it have been better for her just to not you know just keep sitting in the back of the bus and say you know this is just the way you know acceptance or mm -hmm. I mean we, we, we it seems like we really respect you know and admire and seek to emulate that kind of human courage which breaks the status quo when the status quo is you know, unjust and other so it's uh, I don't know it's just a real like the serenity prayer or something you know, it's mm -hmm. very hard to um, to know if sometimes it, you know cowardice or lack of courage is masquerading as acceptance mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great reflection. You know, to to realize our own mm, power, potency, that we can also uh, affect change, implement change, be a change maker, as you say. We're all change makers in small or large ways, which require, which means we have a lot of responsibility for our actions. I don't have an answer to that. It's a big question. You know, as Mother Teresa said, there we can we can't we. There are no great things. We can only do small things with great love. You know, so we often dismiss our impact because it's just oh, well, it's just me. It doesn't make any difference what I do or say, or, but it does. Just like we did for Rosa Parks. So there's a certain responsibility I think each one of us has for how we are in the, we are part of the changing process. It's our, our, our human experience, this is the way the mind is structured, which is dualistic, is I'm here, life is out there. I'm here, traffic is out there, I am not traffic. Traffic is in my way. I'm here. Things change, and it happens to me. Versus, oh, I'm I'm also change. I am change for another person. I am the very uncertain thing that I'm feeling uncertain about w w in regard to them. Right? We we are we are that changing element in a relationship. We might not like the fact that our partner changes, but guess what? <laughs> 
we do too. So we are part of that dance, and in that dance we have responsibility for whatever we do, whether we're acting skillfully or unskillfully. So it's a great question. Can I say yes. something about Please. that? Yeah. Uh, over the weekend, I was listening to some a journalist um, comment about Rosa Parks, about why um, we revere her rather than other people who um, didn't go back to the back of the bus. Mm. Um, there's a statue in the Capitol building that was just um, uh, over the weekend. Her statue was brought to the Capitol, mm. and it was the first like full-figured African American statue in the Capitol. Even Martin Luther King didn't have a full human mm. statue mm. Um, in the Capitol. But they're saying that the reason why she stood out rather than the others was because of the way that she um, carried herself mm. and that um, she wasn't reactionary um, when people told her to sit in the back of the bus and that she had this dignity mm. at the time and a strength and uh, that she wasn't angry or violent mm -hmm. and that that stood out for people and um, that made more of an impression than people who were much more outspoken um, mm. which I think is what you spoke to just now mm. Yeah. Cool. thank you Well, thank you for your comments and questions. And um, may we live in harmony with this truth, as the chant goes. And just to pay attention, you know, to, 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 to really to pay attention to our relation, your relationship to it, and to see the ways that we go to sleep to see why we go to sleep and what it's like to be awake to it and to, 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 to feel the preciousness of this life, preciousness of being human, the preciousness of this moment with ourselves, with each other, with life. You know, it's, the point of it is to wake us up. Because uh, we just don't know. We just don't know how long we're going to be here. This might be your last Monday night. You never know. It might be my last Monday night. You never know. You just don't. You really don't. I mean, I, you know, it just, we just don't. You know, I, I hear stories all the time. People just dropping, you know, heart attack. <laughs> you know, you laugh, but it's true. That's it's why true. we're laughing. I know. <laughs> it's like we're on this, you know, these are the, where those, like at those, you know, this playgrounds, fairgrounds, you know, the ducks, you know going along and you shoot the duck, ducks fall over, you know. It's like, who's next? 
And you know, we're laughing because we think, well, it's not going to happen to me. <laughs> you know, Jack tells this story, or he's um, some big conference somewhere, a big talk with some, and I think he's with Stephen Levine, and it's on death and dying, and, and, and this woman stands up and talks about, I think it's about, I'm sure you've heard this story because it's Jack's class, but about, uh, this woman starts speaking about the, the loss of suicide. She had a suicide in the family, and how just incredibly devastating it is, which I, it is, and I have several friends who've lost family members to suicide. And um, and Jack's response was, he said to the audience, he said, stand up anybody who's lost a close family member to suicide. And there was like hundreds of people stood up. And it was shocking. And, th- and, he, and he said to look around. He said, you're not alone. You're not alone. This happens. This is not infrequent. It's just not advertised. It's not broadcast. You know? I think there's 33... Uh, what is this? The statistic of... Uh, um, vets who come back from Afghanistan and Iraq. There's, I think it's 30 veterans a month take their lives. Or a, hmm? a day. 34. A 34 a day. It, a day. It's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. So it's, it's, rea- it's real, you know, whether it's the drugs or suicide or natural causes. So I don't want to depress you because um, <laughs> it can sound depressing, but it's just real life, you know. And it's depressing if we think, I think we get depressed if we think it shouldn't happen. It's, it's life and death, it's what happens. You know, it's sad, it's tragic that people take their lives, you know, but it's also what's life. You know? So may we live with this awareness and um, uh, the appreciation of the preciousness and the fragility of our lives, and may we take care of each other. What, what else? And then, what? What else do we do with this? What comes out of this is is kindness. Like, what else are we going to do but be kind to each other, to love ourselves, to love each other? Like, what else is there to do? Yeah, to know that we, you know, this. We don't know how long we got with each other. We just don't. So let's be kind to each other. Thank you. <laughs> Good night. <Thank> you. <laughs>